Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. Recently, an event was hosted to launch a campaign called Save Our Old Forests, or SUF, sponsored by the Arlington Forest Protection Society. Delicious food was provided, there was a silent auction fundraiser, talks by biologists Donna Crossland and Bob Bancroft, and an introduction to the campaign by Rob Bright. The place was packed, and I felt a great sense of hope and renewed energy to be surrounded by so many thoughtful people working towards a healthy future for our forests. The event took place in Bridgetown, in Annapolis Valley, also in Keswick District within Nova Scotia, which is part of Mi'kma'ki, the unceded and traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq people. This Shared Ground episode is part one of three about this campaign. This first episode features an interview with Rob Bright, one of the people behind the Save Our Old Forests campaign. You'll hear short clips from Donna Crossland's and Bob Bancroft's talks, and then the next two episodes will feature their full talks. So if you haven't already, please follow Shared Ground wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss what's around the bend. So, to get us started, here is a recording of Larry Powell live at the event, sharing the inspiring story of how the Arlington Forest Protection Society got started, and introducing Rob Bright. From there, you'll then hear a short recording, which was part of Rob's talk. I remember attending a meeting one time. I went to a meeting in the woods, and that was a first for me on the side of a dirt road, and we all sat on the ground on moss and rocks and roots. Rob and Laura Bright were there, and their concern was the potential clear-cutting of 50 or so acres in a water-sensitive forest that was up the hill from them. They and others ended up protecting the forest by buying it from the guy who was going to clear-cut it. And then they created a society to not only look after that forest, but to create awareness through workshops and seminars. And this is a result of that, because the Arlington Forest Protection Society is hosting this event. So I'm going to introduce you to Rob Bright. Rob spent the early part of his career working with street youth in downtown Toronto before becoming a social researcher studying harm reduction with injection drug users. So already, you know, here's a man with a social conscience, a man who's passionate about what he does. After a few years, Rob switched things up and went for the chef's school. That's why you saw him in the kitchen. 
So it was there that he found a passion for food and following food from the farm to the table. And you know how things go. You get into one thing, it takes you to another thing. So that led him to learning about industrial agriculture and its impacts on the environment and climate change. Rob and Laura made a move to Hampton in 2018 to follow their dream of growing and raising their own food, which they do. I've seen their dining room table completely filled with potatoes that they just dug from their garden. Once the gardens were built and the hens started laying, Rob's attention was caught by the natural beauty of Nova Scotia, which we're known for, and the clear-cutting and aerial spraying of glyphosate that is hidden not far from the side of the roads. So we all know that. And Rob is the current vice president of the Arlington Forest Protection Society. So I'd like him to get up and speak. Um, he'll fill you in on all the activities. He'll talk about this campaign, Save Our Old Forest. And today is not a one-off. This is the beginning. Well, thank you very much. We're a little overwhelmed at how many people showed up today. And we're really glad we switched halls because the first hall we had booked would only hold 60 people. And so I've been told there's about 180 who showed up today. So that's uh, amazing. <laughs> so why are we doing this campaign? The Save Our Old Forest campaign has one simple message. Old forests are critically important to nature and wildlife and habitat. And therefore, they're critically important to us, all of us. We don't have much left, so we need to protect the little bit that remains. The good news is, is that the province of Nova Scotia has made a legal commitment to protect 20% of lands and waters by 2030. To do this, they will have to add 330,000 hectares, about 815,500 acres, to protected status. And that has to happen over the next seven years. Fortunately, there's enough land to do this, with plenty left for forestry and other uses. The bad news is that the remaining old forests will be gone before they can be protected, unless we do something about it. The Department of Natural Resources and Renewables acknowledges that they don't have enough people on the ground to properly identify species at risk, habitat, and old forests. People want to help. People care. Especially people in rural areas and rural communities who can see what's happening around them, where they work, where they live, where they play. And here in Annapolis County, citizen scientists are already documenting at-risk lichens and other species at risk on Crown land. I'd like to take a moment just to talk about Crown land and what do we mean exactly when we say save our old forests. We recognize that Crown land is the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. We also recognize that around the world, lands stewarded by Indigenous people support more wildlife and nature and more habitat than lands that are stewarded by non-Indigenous people. Therefore, we support Indigenous-led efforts to protect Mother Earth, and as settlers, we are trying to do our part to halt the damage that is still being done to the remaining forests, treating forests not as resources to be owned and used however we please, but as relations is an important step. So when we say save our old forests, we include all of our kin, both human and non-human. We have a great deal to learn, and we welcome opportunities to educate ourselves and to work with the original stewards of Mi'kma'ki. 
So let's look at the area around Goldsmith Lake. This is an example of an area that should be protected and how we can be better stewards of McMockie. Last year, DNR posted plans to log the 464 hectares, around 1,146 acres, around Goldsmith Lake, despite the fact that a proposal had already been submitted to protect the area. Citizens followed the department's processes and submitted comments through the proper channels, noting that this area should be protected. The plans to log were approved anyway. Since then, citizen scientists have been going to the forest around Goldsmith and have documented 17 species at risk in and around all the cut blocks. Because of their efforts, the logging in those cut blocks is now on hold, with plans by the department to ruin tr the treatment of the entire area. Unfortunately, the damage was already done when a 100-foot wide by 2-kilometer long area was clear-cut to put in a logging road, the equivalent of 6 hectares or almost 15 acres. Fragmenting the forest like that damaged it as a wildlife habitat and threatened several of the species at risk, species that were documented as the road itself violates the buffer zones that DNR requires when species at risk are present. Clearly the process to determine where harvesting should be allowed is not working. There is a better way, and that is what the Save Our Old Forest campaign is all about. As I said before, the government has legally committed to protect 20% of the lands and water by 2030. But right now, they only have a plan to make a plan for what should be placed under protection by the end of 2023. Meanwhile, old forests in Nova Scotia are at risk of being logged, just like the old forests at Goldsmith Lake. We need the government to act on its promise to protect in a way that is practical, sensible, and timely before those old forests are gone. In 2003, there were only about 1.5% of our old forests left in Nova Scotia. And it's really difficult now to know how many are left from then. That was almost 20 years ago. We can't afford to wait for the government's plan to make a plan by the end of 2023. We have a few different strategies here to hold the government accountable, and we need your help to make this happen. So how can you help? The first thing you can do is sign the petition. The MLA for Annapolis County, Carmen Kerr, has agreed to table the petition on behalf of his constituents and present it at the legislature at Government House in Halifax when we're ready. Thank you for doing this, Carmen. Specifically, the petition calls for the Premier to pause all harvesting and road building in forests over 80 years old on Crown land in Annapolis County until 20% of Nova Scotia lands have been permanently protected. This is a very reasonable ask considering what's at stake here. We decided to launch the Save Our Old Forest campaign in Annapolis County where we live, but we would love to see it spread province-wide. We have developed a toolkit to help people in other counties take up the campaign, so if you live in another county and you would like to get involved, please contact us. We're here to help you. Another way you can help is by taking a few copies of the petition and helping fill those petitions with signatures. Get your friends, family, neighbours, co-workers, colleagues, get them all to sign it and collect as many signatures as you can and as soon as you can. If you're on social media, Follow and like us on Facebook and Instagram and share our posts with your friends and groups. And if you have a business or you belong to a non-for-profit, consider letting us use your logo on our website as a Save Our Old Forest supporter. We have 29 supporters already and we're getting more every day. And we would love to add your logo to our website. There's power in numbers and every show of support counts. And finally, 
You can help by coming out to other Save Our Old Forest events. We have an arts and science event called For the Love of Lichens and Old Forests that will be exhibited in Arts Place in Annapolis Royal through May and June. And we have workshops planned for nature lovers, including lichen identification, using eye naturalist, and birding by ear. And we were just in the planning stages for Soofstock, a music festival that will be planned for August. <laughs> so there really are many ways for you to get involved and for you to help. And we really do need your help. If what remains of our old forests are going to be protected, we're not going to be able to do it without numbers and numbers of people. And that means all of you. So on behalf of the Arlington Forest Protection Society, I would like to sincerely thank you all for coming out today and helping us launch the Save Our Old Forest campaign. The petition can be found and printed from the Arlington Forest Protection website. For those not in that area, Goldsmith Lake is just a little south of Bridgetown. It's not too far from Beals Brook, also known as Last Hope Camp which was protected last year by many people camping out and through citizen scientists searching out species at risk lichens. It is an inspiring example of what can be achieved when folks come together to get in the way of harm. I'll just mention here that the story of Last Hope Camp, including a conversation with Nina Newington, is the topic of Shared Ground Episodes 1, 2, and 6. And it's not too late to save the forest at Goldsmith Lake too. Now I want to share a couple of short clips from the other speakers at the Save Our Old Forests launch. Here is a wee bit from each of Donna Crossland's and Bob Bancroft's talks that day. We'll start with Bob. I gotta say right out the offset, I'm embarrassed by my culture. That kind of sums up what we've done here. And I, really, uh, what scientists are learning is is, is to think the way the First Nations folks did. And I'm not pretending to, but they knew the forest was really important. They were people of the forest, the Mi'kmaq. And because and, uh, they knew they were smart enough to respect the forest and not think of it as dollars in a pile by the road. The biodiversity issues that, uh, that's a word that very few people know, but I call it species richness. Um, we had it here, we really did. Essentially, uh, it's an insurance policy for nature to have as many different species of plants and animals together in one general area. And, and if one little thing changes, if, if the climate changes like it is now rapidly, then, then there's more to fill in. But, but what the forest industry has done, it basically is simplify the forest. So and what, what we really want to talk about is all these uh, other species that, that uh, did exist and do exist. One of the reasons I'm here today is that, first of all, it's very nice to, to, to see a whole bunch of you. The only way we're ever going to change this is if we do things together and demand change. We've got to, got to do that. There are all kinds of you that have done that. The politicians won't do it right now because they don't think they're being supported by enough people. So that's where the role, and, and too often, conservation winds up being conversation and consternation. And it just doesn't go any further than that, and that's useless, really. It's, it just gets your nerves up. But I have, I have friends like uh, Kerry Prosper, a First Nations person up where I live, and he says, you know, when a tree falls down in the forest, there's an effect on the ocean eventually. And that's the way to think about it, folks. You've got to put it all together, and that's part of what's wrong with, with our culture. We keep isolating things. 
I was out on the Crown lands last spring and there were lots of hardwood forests being cut down in the middle of bird nesting season. And I looked at the piles and I went, you know what, a lot of this is not lumber. It's not going to be sawn into lumber. It's too crooked. It's too imperfect. It's just going to be chipped. Uh, it's a crime. So, uh, yeah, we need to stop this. We can do better. So the solutions, don't let the last natural patches be harvested on crown land. Um, I, I won't speak to private lands, but I would hope that if you've got old growth on private land that you will be good stewards of the land and think about seven generations and global warming and that we're all sharing the same planet. Uh, protect your old growth. Put a pause on harvest of crown forests greater than 80 years until they can be better assessed. And everybody has something that they can do to save our old forests. So that was just a tiny taste of Bob Bancroft's and Donna Crossland's excellent talks. As I mentioned earlier, there will be two upcoming episodes where each of their talks from the event will be shared. Stay tuned. After the event, in spite of having had a very full day, Rob Bright met with me to talk about the campaign and related thoughts and ideas. I wanted to remind listeners that although the term clear-cutting isn't used anymore by government or industry, the practice is still occurring. One of the things actually that inspired me about this event, when you were thanking everybody, and I just realized how many people contributed to this, like right down from like the borrowing of the projector to all the different delicious food. And It was surprising how many people contributed. I mean, we thought, we were hoping we would get 20 items for the auction sale. And after 32, we had to start turning people away and saying, we have too much stuff. Oh, wow. It seems to me like a lot of people care about these things and a lot of people want to help. And once they have a clear avenue for how to contribute, your like support comes pouring in. Is that what you're finding? I think so. Um, I guess uh, we've only been here, Laura and I have only been here for almost four years now. Um, and it just seems like there's more and more awareness about the trouble of, that's going on with forestry and how how much trouble our forests are in and just how few old forests are left. Uh, and it just, it seems like the awareness is growing quite quickly and quite steadily. So, um, yeah, I think we're sort of catching a bit of a wave here in terms of public awareness. And uh, we just hope it keeps growing and that people don't just hear about it and become aware about it, but begin speaking up what they feel about it as well and getting more involved and, and demanding that government take action instead of, you know, I mean, we've had old forest policy in the, in the mix since 2011. And it just seems like one thing after another comes up that we need to do these things, but there's no action taken to actually follow through and, and fix things. Right. So right up to the Leahy report, which is still hasn't been implemented, even though it's been published. I think it's over three years now it's been out. And so it's, I think people are almost to the point where they're fed up and they've had enough. Yeah. For me, I th I think it's, it was sort of like a realization at some point where, oh no, we can't trust, like the, the government isn't doing what they're supposed to, or, you know the forestry companies are breaking laws and no one's enforcing it, like the Migratory Bird Act that's been in existence since 1917 and but but that that still forestry is happening during the, the times where birds will be harmed. Like just the fact that those things happen and the fact that it sh does seems like it shouldn't be the 
you know, people's job to make sure these rules are being followed. But then when you realize, oh, well, they're, they're not being followed, and then you feel like yeah. you have to do something about it. That's true. I mean, the Migratory Bird Act and, and government and industry just seem to work very well together when it comes to not enforcing or overlooking, you know, certain things and certain rules or certain laws that should be followed. Um, so the word incidental take is the word that government uses when they say, no, we can't get in the way of industry because here it's, you know, incidental take is just the birds just happen to be there when we cut down their forest and the nests just happen to be there in the ditch when we're clearing the ditches for the, you know, after mm -hmm. the spring. So I know Bev Wigney, uh, who is a, a, a bit of a hero as far as being an ecologist and, and nature person here in Nova Scotia and in the Annapolis Valley. She has been screaming blue murder about this for years. And, yeah. and, uh, um, I think people are finally listening and people are finally getting fed up and recognizing that government is shirking its responsibilities and not enforcing regulations or enforcing laws. Or if someone is caught doing something wrong, you know, it's a bit of a slap on the wrist and a minor fine that means business as usual as far as industry is concerned. Maybe if you could tell us sort of the story of, so, so this event, Save Our Old Forest, was a, a launch of the, this campaign. Maybe we could just back up a little bit and if you could tell us sort of the story about how that started. Uh, well, I've known Nina Newington for, it's going on four years now, and uh, I know her passion uh, for protecting nature and protecting wildlife and habitat. And uh, it's really her brainchild, the Save Our Old Forest campaign. She was the one who came up with the name, the idea. And we were talking, uh, Laura, myself, Nina, and Debbie Stoltz-Giffen, uh, you know, how could this, how could we really bring this forward? And uh, Laura and I both sit on the board for the Arlington Forest Protection Society. And we thought, you know, with some sponsorship from a nonprofit, uh, maybe it would carry a little more legitimacy than um, just regular citizens trying to do something on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked to the rest of our board and they were happy to go forward with it. Um, we came up with some money to help sponsor, just get it off the ground to begin with. Uh, some budget money, a bit of a donation uh, and some fundraising possibilities that we could follow up with. We all recognized that forestry in Nova Scotia is a, a bit out of hand and has been for a while in terms of espousing ecological forestry and saying that they're being environmentally good stewards when their actions say the exact opposite. So we've all been really, really passionate about trying to get something done. Uh, so Arlington Forest Protection Society really seemed like a logical step to take in terms of sponsoring the campaign. And and how did that uh, society start in the first place? All of the members in, uh, that are, are board members right now, um, we all live on Hampton Mountain or in Hampton. And uh, one day we drove down the road coming back home and we just saw a hundred acres of land being clear cut over about a week it took them to do. And it was just devastating to drive by that every day. So when Olga found out that the property next door to her property was being clear cut, um, she was beside herself with grief and frustration. 
And she posted on Facebook, you know, what am I going to do? What can we do? And uh, the first thing I thought was contact the owner and see if he'd be willing to sell. And uh, Olga said, I'm on it. And she's been good friends with Chris since Chris was a young girl. I mean, Chris calls Olga Oma, which is grandma. And, and that's kind of what their relationship has been. So Chris went and met with the owner and uh, negotiated a deal where he would be willing to sell it and save the forest and then leave it up to us to try and raise that money. So that's what we did. And uh, it was so over several months that uh, I think over 215 or 20 people ended up donating so that we ended up, I think we raised, it was in the neighborhood of $93,000 to, to buy that 47 acre piece of land and mm. That's kind of how it started. and So, yeah, just a group of people seeing something that didn't want to happen, didn't agree with, didn't match up with your with your values, and you found a way, like found your own solution, basically. We found a way. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but all of these people came together and said, we'll, we're going to donate money to save this piece of forest. And, you know, here we are. And uh, so we thought we better put this forest into a... Uh, uh, you know, register it as a not-for-profit and continue on the good work and run workshops out of it. And now the forest is called the Arlington Teaching Forest. And we have people come and do mycology workshops and tree identification workshops and bird workshops. And so it's just kind of expanded into kind of a, a public education and awareness uh, society and, and all about nature and, and ecology and, and forest protection. And mm. so I guess that's and it's, it, we're only three years old, so it's kind of moving quickly from, I mean, the first year we had one workshop, the second year we had six workshops, this year we have 15 workshops scheduled, and it just keeps kind of growing, like, yeah, it's quite exciting. And yeah, well, it's neat, isn't it? Like, it started with that, and then, like, you achieved your your initial objective, and then and then it just, you kind of built on the momentum of it, and, and all sorts of other things now are happening sort of with that as the base. Yeah, we definitely did. Uh, yeah, uh, we started with, actually, we didn't even know this is what we were going to become. We just wanted, the initial goal was to save the forest. And that was kind of, I think, all that any of us had in mind. And mm -hmm. we had no idea we'd be running this many workshops out of it or attracting this much attention or getting involved in a campaign like the SOOF campaign. And, and uh, that's all just kind of snowballed and happened on its own somehow. Yeah. I believe that most Nova Scotians probably don't want the forest to disappear. They don't want the forest to be poisoned. <laughs> you know, um, they they care about these these issues. They want a healthy environment for their children to grow up in, and all these things. But I think many of us just feel overwhelmed, you know, and maybe at a loss for what what we can do, or feel like there's no, you know, maybe have lost hope, or just feel like there's no, you know, there's no power. I mean, there's probably all sorts of different reasons why people do, don't do more, but I feel like that that's a big part of it. So I feel like this, this campaign um, is really offering, well, hope for one thing about what can happen when, when um, groups of people come together for something that they care about, but you also laid out some really clear uh, steps for action. So I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about what what you think people can do and how we can come together to tackle these huge, huge issues that can be so overwhelming. Um, well, I'm, I'm for one, I, I was one of those people pulling my hair out and whining and bitchy and complaining about 
how can this be going on and da 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 and and not really being active and doing anything about it. Uh, it wasn't until something Nina Newington said, and I, I don't remember how many years ago this was now, probably almost when I first, just about when I first met her. Um, she said, you know, it's, it's all, people can sit at home and complain and whine and carry on and just grieve about how horrible the situation is. But once you start getting out there and doing something about it, it just feels so much better. You can whine and complain and grieve and carry on still, but you're doing something. So just the fact that you're out there acting, taking action, whether it's public awareness and educating others, whether it's confronting government, whether it's addressing laws that need to be changed, whether it's addressing you know, uh, regulations in certain industries that need to be upheld, um, just the, the acting part of it, just the taking action part of it, suddenly you don't feel so overwhelmed and you're not pulling your hair out anymore and the same things are going on, but the change is already happening. Yeah. We're really grateful that Carmen Kerr, our, our MLA, is uh, going to table this petition uh, in the legislature in Halifax and the government house. Um, that's a big step. And, uh, of course, we want as many people as possible to sign it. So that is a huge step and a huge action people can take. Um, we hope we have thousands and thousands of people sign the petition. Um, we hope other people from other counties want to get involved. We have been sort of putting together a toolkit of sorts and then sort of a process of how to go about um, having events, making people more aware, meeting with politicians, letting people in government know that we will not tolerate this kind of stuff anymore. Um, that needs to catch on. And, and again, again, it's the difference between sitting at home and complaining about it and knowing it's going on versus getting out there and actually trying to do something, mm -hmm. whatever that something might be. Um, so yeah, a, a, a sticker on your bumper, a sticker in your window, a, a, a business logo that's on your website that says they support what you're doing. And then you have dozens of logos from dozens of businesses and just watch that continue to grow and snowball into more and more support. I think then government has to pay attention once you get, once you reach a certain threshold of this many people are now supporting you, this many people are now taking action. That's really what it's got to be. I mean, no individual, no one person is going to change anything. But certainly once the numbers get up there and you're no longer an individual and you have all of this support, that's got to raise some eyebrows in terms of government paying attention and industry finally being held accountable. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious about sometimes when you're trying to work with a group of people, even if you all have good intentions and, and you like each other, sometimes um, some of the difficulty arises from like interpersonal um, challenges or, you know, misunderstandings between between people in the group. Or I'm just wondering if you've had to navigate anything like that. Like you don't have to give a specific example or anything, but I'm just wondering for like people that are trying to work together, do you have any like tips or advice on on how to like create a good working environment or how, how to like overcome any of those kinds of obstacles? Uh, it's funny you should mention that. Um, I would say beware of email and social media and any kind of textual communication where you're not actually sitting face to face in a room together talking about something because 
boy, communication can go sideways just from an email where you think you've read tone into something that wasn't there or another person reads tone into what you've said that wasn't intended. And yes, things can get kind of funky <laughs> at times doing that. So um, I really like that most of the meetings that we have in the SUF campaign, uh, our, our, our committee, our working group have been face-to-face meetings and that we've been working together for a few years now. So getting to know each other's work style and how you behave and how you act in front of each other isn't so much a surprise. Um, Sometimes you can have a group of people and there's maybe three or four or five of you and then a new person joins into that working group and they don't really know how you are all working together and they're the new person and it's really important that they be given some leeway and that they be sort of coach through well we've already been through this that and the other thing so we don't need to rehash all that again and it can certainly be difficult working with people of different personalities and different value systems who want the same things but don't necessarily want to get there the same way mm-hmm. yeah yeah that seems like one of the bigger big biggest challenges like how to work well with one another because we have so many important like goals that we want to achieve and how, how to actually manage that together is almost yeah. like the, the hard part. That's true. And even thinking of different groups like uh, ATV drivers and who want to drive on the trails and hunters and fishers and, and uh, um, you know, hikers and, and campers. And there's so many people that share the woods and share the forests and want this to make sure that they stay there and protect them. But they don't necessarily agree on what each other is doing. Like you shouldn't be riding your ATV in the middle of nature or you shouldn't be killing hunting for whatever reason, or, you know, uh, you're fishing, you're overfishing our fish or you're doing this, that and the other thing. But all of these people enjoy and appreciate nature and just being out in the middle of it. And if they started coming together and demanding that government stop clear cutting or stop spraying glyphosate on everything, You know, there would be so much more support. There would be so much more power in that voice that isn't divided because they all do different things or appreciate nature for different reasons. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can all appreciate nature and share the bounty of what nature has to offer, um, it should really bring us together and, and not keep us divided. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That's one of the reasons I actually started this podcast because I was curious, like I thought, I, I keep thinking, well, so many people want what's good for, you know, the rest of nature and want to respect the land that we're on and, and enjoy being outdoors. And, you know, where are the, where do our shared values lie? Because there are a lot of more surface things that we could disagree upon or, or have misunderstandings with each other about. But if we could agree upon like what's really important deep down, I, I feel like almost all of us could say, yeah, of course, I, I agree with that. So yeah, I don't know if there's any any other like thoughts that's sparking for you about like how you find that kind of common ground with people. I, th- I think it's really difficult, especially in this day and age where there's so much polarization, you know, in politics. I mean, it seems to me that in politics, people used to be able to come together from different sides of the table or from different political parties and even, you know, at least be civil and respectful and come to some sort of consensual agreement about how things are working nowadays it just seems it's a lot of mudslinging a lot of hurling of insults and if you're in that camp you're not in my camp and we have nothing to say to each other and i think that's terrible for 
our political system, also for our, our the way we live in our own regions and areas, uh, we can't be so divided. I think, and and even hope to get along on anything. Um, it's 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 a bit gloomy, but I think there are there are ways. I mean, no one wants to see the the planet be destroyed. No one wants to see climate change meet its full spectrum of like we're really on a bad path here and where we're going is not good but certainly i mean i i I think most people regardless of what political party you you belong to or what political values you hold um most people agree that what we're doing is not good and that things need to change i don't think we've agreed on how we can make those changes um we know that the climate crisis is also a biodiversity crisis and that we're losing more and more of nature the longer that we go down this path. Um, there's so many people that want to protect nature that it really shouldn't matter what the reason is that you want to protect it as right. long as we protect it. Right. So maybe even or being more explicit with that, right, when you talk to people and saying, you know, we understand that we don't, we probably lots of things that we don't agree upon, or we might go about things differently, but can we agree on this? Like even just having a, an agreement right off the bat, maybe about like, what, what is this thing that we agree on and try to hold that at the forefront of our vision while we work together? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, the, the, the Nova Scotia's government, um, their plan to protect 20% of lands and waters by 2030 is fantastic. It's a huge step forward. And if we can actually do it, um, that will be an accomplishment and everyone will benefit from that. Um, we probably need to be protecting more, but if we can at least get to that benchmark, that will be a major accomplishment. And no one's going to complain and, and be grown, bemoan the fact that we are, have protected 20% of our lands and waters. Um, I guess it's more like, well, when do we start doing this? When is this going to happen? And and let's get this the ball rolling and let's put things in motion. I mean, as Bob Bancroft and Donna Crossland were saying today at the event, um, it's fine to say we're going to protect 20% of our forests or our lands by 2030, but we've only got seven years to get there and we only have 1% or less of our old forests left. Shouldn't we just be put, protecting those right away, at least until all the areas are designated and protected that should be protected? Yeah. Like, why are we making these promises seven years down the road and allowing these old forests to continue being clear cut every day, you know, from now up until someone finally puts their foot down and says no more? Yeah. We, we have such a tiny sliver of, of these old forests left. Uh, it makes no sense not to, to stop the harvesting of especially the oldest forest that we have left. like It should be a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be. It does seem like a very clear and reasonable thing to be trying to, to get them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really struck me from the presentations today, and I thought about this uh, before, as I think lots of people have, but um, I think Donna Crossland said, you know, she she was talking about that the forest doesn't it doesn't even belong to us, you know, this crown land. It isn't our land. I mean, it is our land in the sense that you said, and I love that distinction too, where you said the land belongs to all of us, including all the other species. And and you were talking about the indigenous management too of internationally, the lands that are managed by indigenous people are much better protected than um, the lands that aren't, which of course makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
we clearly haven't, as as settlers and, and colonists, we really haven't done met our end of the bargain in terms of what was supposed to have been agreed upon, how we were supposed to get along uh, with Indigenous people in Canada or Mi'kmaq people in, in Nova Scotia. We clearly haven't lived up to our end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, the level of distrust and anger and, and mistrust on, on their part is 100% legitimate and valid and understandable. Um, I don't understand... Uh, the, you know, settlers, I, I admit that a settler is a good term, a good name for, for what European descent descended people are here. Um, but we seem to have, even many people have a problem with that distinction. And I'm not a settler. I've been here for generations. And, mm. and it's like, yeah, but <laughs> we're still here as, as colonists, as, as colonial um, a people that we, we we still our ancestors settled this settled here and and um, there were people here thousands of years before us who we have completely displaced and if not displaced to the point where you know I don't I don't think it's it's uh, unfair to say what we've done is genocidal um, in terms of destroying their culture in terms of taking over their land in terms of displacing them and shuffling them off to other places that they weren't they didn't start out at and and. Uh, I don't know. There's going to have to be a, a huge, um, a huge change in in, in attitude uh, from people who are not indigenous uh, towards indigenous people and understanding where that mistrust and anger comes from because it is totally valid and totally legitimate. And uh, when I think of this, just the common sort of sayings uh, uh, from from Mi'kmaq people <clears throat> who talk about you know we have to think seven generations from now. Every decision that we make now. We should be thinking about how that's going to impact people seven generations from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if we looked at forestry from that point of view. Yeah. We would not have a forestry problem. Yeah. Uh, imagine if we looked at our waters and, and overfishing and polluting our, our lands and waters. We would not have that those problems now if we followed such a simple concept as think about what's going to happen in seven generations if we do this. Yeah, we would be much better off if if the original people of this land were were I mean management is even a funny word really. But if if they were the ones interacting with the land and making the decisions about like what, you know, what happens or doesn't happen, there's no no question at all that we like you said we we wouldn't have a forestry problem. We would have healthy ecosystems and healthier humans and all sorts of things would be different and I'm just wondering like we neither one of us probably know the answer to this, but I, I'm just wonder how many of us would actually prefer that the the Mi'kmaq manage the the crown lands. You know, maybe the maybe a lot of Nova Scotians actually think that's a great idea. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I th- I think it's probably a great idea. I think it's a lot. It would be a lot better than what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other concept that, that Indigenous people here have this idea that um, you know trees and fish and land they're not resources for us to exploit they're our kin they're they're our relations mm-hmm. they're they're we're so dependent and interdependent with them that you know you you should see a tree as 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 part of your family uh, that you should see the land that you live on as you know something that that i'm not even sure how to put it into words uh, it just doesn't make sense to to take our European colonial settler 
views of, you know, resources are resources and they're there to be exploited and used however we feel fit. If we could just switch that mindset to, and I guess it's kind of like the, the think seven generations ahead, you know, if, if a tree is like one of your family, uh, what's it going to take for you to chop that tree down? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if, if fish and wildlife and animals are your kin, how are you going to view them in terms of resources? Like you can't really look at them that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they're not resources and you think of all the other um, things that they do as part of our, our bigger family, that they help us with the air that we breathe and they help from the climate becoming too hot and they help provide homes for all our other family, <laughs> like all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. The Western idea of like humans at the top of the food chain and everything else is below us versus mm-hmm. the indigenous thing of a circle or a whole group of thing. And we're just one little dot within that yeah. circle. You know, we are really are inter- interdependent and um, we don't stand above or outside of nature. We're natural beings ourselves. And somehow we fooled ourselves into thinking we're not and we're above nature and outside of nature. And it's almost like the way we look at things is that we're divorced from nature and nature is just there for us to use mm-hmm. and dispose of as we see fit. And it can't be good for anyone. It can't be good for the health of the planet. It can't be good for the health of any individual in terms of their men- their mental health. Um, it's just not natural and normal. I mean, we are natural beings. <laughs> right. Because we're also divorcing ourselves from our sense of belonging in the world that we live in. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, just as as we're talking about this, I'm I'm thinking that so so you had you had this little image of we're just a, a little dot, an interconnected dot, and we're certainly not acting like that. I guess I was just thinking that 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 mentality that we were working from for a long time, where we did believe we were at the, at the top and everything else was kind of below us, and that we weren't part of this interconnected system. Um, that I think a, a lot of us believe now a more holistic view of who we are and, and our part in in the greater life um, but a lot of the systems that have come out of that type of thinking continue on and some people still have that type of thinking and it continues on but I, I just seems like more and more people now don't believe that anymore but it's like the the systems that we've created are just kind of gone crazy and have gotten out of control Um so it's like sort of like a, a realignment or a rebalancing with what actually we believe, because I bet there's a lot of people that don't believe that anymore, like don't believe the things that have created the the, the systems and, and the mess that we're currently in. Well, that, that is a huge question. I mean, the systems we've, create, we've created for ourselves are, I guess, if you go back far enough, are thousands of years old. And, but at the same time, human beings have this capacity to be very resilient and clearly intelligent, although you wouldn't guess it by some of the things we do. Um, but I guess that's the hope is that we are somehow going to change the systems we live in once we, I don't know how that happens to be honest. Like that's just a bit puzzling and mind boggling, but mm-hmm. clearly there are enough people who look at the systems we live in and say, this cannot last. This is not sustainable. This is not working. And what happens next? I don't know. And uh, I don't know who does know, but Certainly, there are enough people thinking that this has to change. We can't keep going this way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe it is. It's always useful for each of us to remember that 
there are a lot of other people that care and that are trying to do things and that and all the ways that people can contribute in different um, creative or seemingly small ways. And the more of us that do whatever it is that we do, obviously, the more that can can shift over time. And so I feel like, you know, you're Arlington Forest Protection Society, like the story of how that started, you know, and and then what's come out of it, like what this campaign that you're working on, and and just the different, you know, all the different ways people can do things, whether it's uh, starting up their own thing, like, like, like your group did, or supporting a group like yours that already exists in in various ways, like there's so so many ways that we can all all help. And, um, and and feel this like greater sense of human community too when we come together to try to try to help solve some of the the mess that we've we as a culture have gotten ourselves into. I guess one of the things I take out of the Arlington Forest Protection Society experience is that average citizens can do something. You know, it doesn't take many of us. It, it's just once we get together. I guess it's Margaret Mead who said. Uh, Never underestimate what a small group of thoughtful, committed people can do. Because clearly, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but the only people that ever do change things are these small groups of committed people. And uh, I think that, you know, Arlington Forest was saved because of that exact thing. Uh, I think that what grows out of Arlington Forest is just growing that group of committed people and taking on more and more things that need to be changed. I just never tire of the reminder that each of us has the potential to contribute towards a better world and that we can find strength in one another to do so. For all the details about the simple yet powerful actions that Rob mentioned to help save our old forests, see their website, arlingtonforestprotection.ca. As always, you can find all the links in the Shared Ground episode description too. It's a help to sign and gather signatures no matter where you live in the province, and if you were in a county other than Annapolis, perhaps you want to get a toolkit from them and protect the old forests in your area. And please consider supporting Shared Ground with a small donation. You can find a donate link on each of the episodes at the Shared Ground Captivate website, as well as at the bottom of the description of the podcast, where you will see a link to support the show. Any little bit helps. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.